0: Thank you. Um, I know we're competing with a lot of rough issues these days, but uh, this is one that's uh, coming down the road. It's been coming down the road a long time. And I think finally, in today's briefing, we have the opportunity to see the convergence of science and policy. And I think this is is one of the, you know, one of the uh, sort of dreamed-of convergences where policy continues to ask the question, How are we doing? We're anticipating that kind of question and answer up front. If we do this, where will we end up? What we're bringing you today is a bunch of new simulations from MIT and several other organizations um, that ask these kinds of policy questions. In other words, taking all of the policy prescriptions out there now for greenhouse gas emissions. Where do they take us? Who does what? And if we take them all together, Where do we end up? And what do we need to do to adjust it to get where we think we want to be as opposed to where these policies end up taking us as they now stand? So I'm going to get out of the picture here. I'm going to let uh, other folks speak to their own work. And first and foremost, I want to introduce Senator Kerry and thank you for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule to be here and uh, kick this thing off for us and say a few words. Um, I'd like to talk about all the accomplishments of Senator Kerry, but I would botch it badly. And so, in order not to do that and embarrass myself, I'm going to turn it over to him directly. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. So I interpret that as Tony's turning it over to me to talk about all my accomplishments. I hope that. What a pleasure to be here with all of you. Thank you. Uh, and uh, my congratulations, Tony, to you, and to Bob Correll, and to the Heinz Center, and the American Meteorological Society, and to MIT, Lintana, Heinz Center, and others who've all been part of developing what is being rolled out here today. This, uh, the Roads concept, as it's called, uh, which is you're going to hear about it and see it momentarily, is uh, an ability to be able to get an overview, as is contained in the name, and make decisions, as is contained in the name – a rapid overview and decision support simulator system. And the reason uh, – I I have to tell you, this works, and it's important, and it's already getting. sort of a broad dissemination, because I used it. Bob uh, briefed me personally before I went to Poznan, and I took some of the slides that will probably appear in this today, and I showed them to every foreign minister and environment minister that I met with there. Yesterday, I met with the chief climate negotiator of China, uh, who is here in Washington, uh, and I met with his whole delegation. And again, I used this exact – Presentation uh, to help him to understand why China is so critically linked to the United States instead of their argument, oh, well, you guys are the big problem and we're developing and you got to go, you know, do what you've got to do and we don't have to be part of the solution. Wrong. And this is the most graphic, powerful tool we've had at our disposal to just negate what they're saying and thinking. Why? Because this tool as you will see, uh, takes the data that we have accumulated as we are getting better and better at measuring the data and understanding it and modeling it, uh, and factors in all of the current proposals of various countries in the world. And first, what it does is establishes a baseline. And we learn that we are well above what the IPCC reports have all said is going to happen. So we track it for a period of time, so they establish the bona fides of this modeling. But then you see a departure in the 2001 to 2008 period because emissions have been growing four times faster than they did in the 1990s. And when you factor in various feedback data uh, and then model it out forwards, Uh, against the programs proposed by all of these countries. You know, you've got about, I don't know, it's about 15, I can't even remember, about 15, 17 countries that have even talked about doing anything. China, for instance, has said they're going to do a 20 percent reduction in intensity. India, 20 percent reduction in intensity, both by 2020. We, on the other hand, Obama has said uh, 80 percent reduction uh, by 2050. Europe, operating on the same sort of 80 by 2050 concept. Then you have some countries that are just business as usual, major emitters. Uh, and then you have others like Brazil, Mexico, a few people who put certain things on the table. This modeling, the roads process, takes all of that promise and has the ability to plug it into the model, go out into the future, and tell us whether or not the current policies that we are engaged in get the job done. And as you will learn, regrettably, very graphically and ominously, it doesn't. If we do the best of what is currently on the table, and many people doubt that we'll be able to do the best of what's on the table, we are woefully inadequate. By mid-century, let alone the out part of the century, by 2100, the end of the century, uh, you have some Just devastating numbers to deal with in terms of parts per million concentration of greenhouse gases, you know, up in the 600 to 900 plus, you know, targets. Uh, But just at the 2050 target, which is within the realm of decent current speculation and discussion, because that's, after all, what Europe and the United States are saying will be the end target of our policy, so it's fair to measure it, we see that. We're still at about a four degree centigrade or 2.5 degree, about 2.5 degree at 2050, 2.25, somewhere in there, uh, and uh, you know, 525, 550 parts per million uh, of greenhouse gases. Neither of them acceptable under any scientific uh, prognosis of where we're heading. So that's why this is important. That's why I'm really pleased to come here and introduce this today. You'll see this very graphically, and you'll be able to talk to the scientists who've helped put it together and measure it. But this tool is going to be critical to us as we go forward in these negotiations. So we can plug in concepts, measure them against current data. The data obviously will be ongoing, updated, and we'll have a ready readout, but this is sort of real-time decision-making measurement, and that's the great value of it. So I think it's going to be very, very significant to the community. And I congratulate everybody who's had any part of it. We thank you for helping us to be able to think about this more effectively. And next week, I'm meeting with all the key players of the administration, and I can guarantee you this is going to be right on the table and in front of them getting immediate use. Thank you, Bob, and thank you, Tony, very, very much.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. let me now uh, introduce Bob Carell from the Vice President of Programs from the Heinz Center, and John Sturman from MIT, who uh, has been uh, sort of leading the development of this effort uh, from MIT, as I said before, and uh, with several other institutions, as Senator Kerry said, and. Uh, And I would urge you to pay a visit to John's website because not only has he done this kind of work, but he's done some really interesting management decision support work throughout his career and uh, tied that to communication. I mean, I don't see how you can untie or unbundle decisions and decision support from communication. But he's written a number of really, really interesting papers that deal with this kind of... How do you grab science, how do you manage with it, how do you do this, how do you do that, and how do you communicate it? So let me kick things off by having Bob Correll come up first and then John Sturman, and we'll have plenty of time for questions, and thank you so much for coming.
2: Thank you very much. John, how, John, Sturman, how do I get the, uh, just, pardon? Okay, thank you. Senator Kerry gave you a really thorough understanding of what, what's behind this enterprise. Uh, <clears throat> but we really do see it a, in a context in which this tool, this Sea uh, Roads capability, can be nested in everything from mock negotiations, where we bring together key players either in the negotiating process or, and we've done about 30 of these already, so it's sort of been field tested as a way of helping people think about the the consequences of decisions. If you sit down, as you will here in a little while, begin to think about, well, if I do this and you do that and others do that, what are the consequences? And the nice thing about this is it operates in real time. So it's a complicated title, but it is it is designed to be a policy-relevant tool of operation. Um, as as Many of you who appeared here in December recall things are really moving quite rapidly outside of even IPCC's suggestion about the future. Um, The upper red line is the the worst case, the business as usual scenario that IPCC projected back in the early part of this decade, the so-called A1FI. And statistically, we're now outside of that. So as you'll see, we're moving in a direction that is counter to uh, our our goal and objective of stabilizing CO2 and other greenho- other greenhouse gases. If you look here, back in the 70s, we were only adding a little over a part per million into the atmosphere. But you can see over time, we're accelerating. So that the Kyoto process did not put a halt on the process, and it's been accelerating. And there's some evidence early anyways that the 2008 number is going to be a little more than 2.2. Now you say, well, that's a small number. But multiply by 10, and you're not talking of the order of 25 parts per million. We're at 385, 390, 390. So you know, in a decade, we're adding a significant number on the base and which we've already uh, gotten clear evidence has uh, substantial impacts on <clears throat> on the on the environment. Now, I mentioned that we do these mock negotiations, and then you can i you could imagine sitting down with negotiators, which we've done a few of them. And you can divide the world up, as you'll see, in a variety of ways. Here you might divide it up into three parts. And you might say, well, the developing countries, the G8s, plus some of the OECD countries, the emerging economies like China and Mexico and elsewhere and other parts of the world. So you can bucket and say, well, what would you do? And John's going to show you how that works. Because you can literally make decisions about how you might bring down your your emissions, and as a consequence, you put into the model a variety of things, like your fossil fuel emission profiles, how you change land use, are so you going to do things in the tropical forests, uh, what are you going to do about sequestration, how are you going to handle the other greenhouse gas? All of those can be put into the system, and you crank it, as you'll see very rapidly, real time, and you'll get some sense of what CO2 concentrations are in the atmosphere, temperature, sea level rise, and a variety. And of course, you realize that you haven't done enough, so you go back and do it again. We've done this with CEOs of big companies. We've done it with the full management board of the European Environment Agency, some 42 ministers who sit and make those kinds of decisions. And you'll see the process of that gives you some sense of several things. First... Something about the dynamics of this system, where the lags are, why things don't move very rapidly, even though you might try to do some things that are fairly radical. And in the process, you might then eventually convert that on the far right into what is it, what is it doing to the biosphere? What are the economic uh, implications? For example, we're talking about how this connects to the McKinsey cost curves and other things that are more relevant to the decision community than PPM more temperature in the, uh, on the global scale. So that's kind of the background. Some of you know that last week Academy released a report um, which calls for deliberation with real-time analysis. As, as the senator indicated, if you know the consequence of your decision while you're making it, you can, uh, you can probably think more differently about it. I talked with one of the key negotiators for the Kyoto Agreement who said to me, if we'd had this capability, we would have had a dramatically different Kyoto agreement because, quote, we really didn't understand what 8% and 6% and when we added all those things together, what they really would mean. So we're trying to introduce this into the process to help give us some real-time capability of analyzing while we're flying, analyzing while we're working. And the Academy report Says clearly that that kind of thing has to come into the decision process because historically we sort of did it linearly. We did our analysis and went negotiate and didn't do any reanalysis. So that's kind of a backdrop. And for any of you who are interested, go to the Academy and you can get a copy of that report. So here's what we're going to do we want to talk about what Sea Roads is all about, how it helps us better understand things if we're in the policy community. Their whole educational impl- implications, Wharton School and other MIT and others are beginning to introduce this into the uh, into the both undergraduate and graduate and and into the public at large sometime within a month or so. There will be this model that you 're going to see on the web available for people to use to to conduct their own studies at a at a fairly high level. Uh, sometime, sometime towards the latter part of the next month or so. And this model has, has been vetted, and you're going to hear more about it. It's based on peer-reviewed science, so we think it has, good, has a good legacy, a good foundation. And with that, I'm going to turn this over to John, who's going to then take you through this process and help you imagine how it might play a different role in the decision processes that are lead to COP15 and beyond. John? Great. Uh, now, is this mic working? Can everybody hear me? Great. Well, thank
3: you, Bob, and thank you, Tony, and thanks to Senator Kerry for introducing it. Uh, I don't need that. Uh, before I uh, get into the substance, I want to thank the development team for the work who are listed here, and particularly the Sustainability Institute and Ventana Systems, who have been critical partners uh, in our team developing the work. So. The model here is designed to meet a particular purpose, which is to be available and capable of supporting real-time deliberations, negotiations, and briefings in educational settings as well. In order for that to happen, it needs to be fast. And as you'll see in a minute, it simulates very quickly. It needs to be accessible. It runs on a modest-sized laptop. I'm running on a Macintosh here, uh, ordinary computer. Uh, It needs an intuitive interface. I'll demo that in a minute. More importantly, it needs to be transparent. It needs to be not a black box, but an open box. So the assumptions are available for review. It is uh, fully documented, and the documentation is available on the Climate Interactive website that I'll show you uh, uh, the address for at the end. And it's easy to work through the model and discover why it does what it does. Now, all models are imperfect. We don't claim that it's a perfect model. No model is perfect. Uh, But you are in a position to understand why it does what it does and then discover if there are assumptions in there that you uh, don't agree with or for which you think there's more recent information, and then it's easy to change those. It has, however, been carefully grounded in and is consistent with the accepted state-of-the-art climate science. We've calibrated and tested it carefully against the information and model results in the uh, fourth assessment report from IPCC and the other models and data that are uh, used extensively in this arena. I can go into more detail there if people are interested in the questions section. It's also extremely easy to try alternate assumptions. So, for example, there's debate about what's known as the climate sensitivity parameter, which is, roughly speaking, how much the temperature and equilibrium would rise if CO2 in the atmosphere doubled compared to pre-industrial levels. This is a parameter that is not very well constrained, and it's unlikely that it will be very well constrained in the foreseeable future for some fundamental physical reasons. So it's very easy in the model to try whatever values you think are worth experimenting with and you'll see that in a minute as well we've also had the model reviewed by a panel of uh, climate scientists and experts in nonlinear dynamics and uh, system dynamics modeling Uh, and uh, uh, their report is also available on the website i'm going to give you a very brief taste for what's in the model but i'm not going to go into technical details please feel free to ask about anything as we go along Uh, The model starts with emissions of greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide and other gases at the country or regional block level. You can run the model with three regional blocks or seven or 15 if you want that much detail and if circumstances require we can add further detail as the data permit. You also specify what is likely to happen or what your scenario and policy is for the future trajectory in deforestation and also the possibility of restoration, afforestation. What this does is it generates the total CO2 flux into the atmosphere, which then drives a carbon cycle model, which gives you the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and that drives the climate through the influence that greenhouse gases have on radiative balance, the balance of incoming solar energy and infrared radiated back out to space. The other greenhouse gases as you see on the top contribute to that radiative forcing as well and from the climate you find out what the projected temperature is going to be, globally average surface temperature, and heat is transported from the surface into the deep ocean as well And of course, energy is conserved, so eventually that heat comes back as the ocean overturns. We also then use that to uh, estimate likely sea level rise. These are the user inputs, and the carbon cycle, climate, temperature, and sea level rise are the principal outputs. Instead of going through the extensive testing that we've done, I'm gonna show you one overview slide to indicate how well the model corresponds to the accepted large-scale models that, for example, as you see here, the IPCC uses. This chart is from the IPCC's uh, fourth assessment report, and what it shows is an ensemble of simulation results from multiple models for a wide range of different future scenarios for emissions growth and they span a wide range from the business as usual A1FI scenario, which is a world of increasing globalization, rapid economic growth, and economic development for the poorer nations of the world, and that is fueled by carbon-based energy. Uh, At the other extreme, you have the B1 scenario, which is a world of economic growth and development, but around a mix of energy sources that's more renewable, less carbon-intensive, And all of, and this spans a very wide range of the future worlds that IPCC has looked at. And what you see is the temperature change. So this is the warming compared to pre-industrial levels in degrees centigrade uh, from 1900 through 2100. So the black curve is the 20th century; that's history. And then these are what happens under the various scenarios with the error bars here showing you that there's variation even within a scenario due to uncertainty in the parameters. What I'm going to do now is take that chart and overlay on it the mean results of our simulation and you can see there's a close, not perfect, but close correspondence of the temperature trajectories and for each of the scenarios the green asterisks here are the Mean values that you get from the Sea roads model compared against the IPCC's scenarios. Again, it's not perfect. There's some small deviations there, but there's no statistically meaningful difference between the output of our model and the means of the different scenarios given the large error bars that, that you see there. I am happy to show further. Uh, Tests results of tests on how the model compares to the various kinds of data. But I think it would be more interesting if we actually got into um, a demonstration. Before I do that, though, these are the members of the scientific review panel. And as you can see, it's been chaired by Bob Watson, who's the former head of IPCC. The others come from a diverse group of climatology programs, system dynamics programs, and uh, economics of climate change, Uh, and here's what they have to say, and I'm just going to excerpt this. So uh, what they tell us is that the model reproduces the response properties of the -the state-of-the-art three-dimensional models very well. Now, they also have suggestions and caveats, and I want to be very clear about those as well. Uh, they, They urge us to recognize, and they urge you all to recognize, that this is a tool for exploratory analysis. It's not And I don't think any model is a tool to give exact point predictions of what's going to happen in the future. No model can do that, not this model, not any of the climate models, because of the uncertainties that are out there. Uh, And what it will do, though, is it will tell you what's likely to happen under a given set of assumptions uh, to concentrations, temperature, and sea level rise. They also suggested a variety of extensions that we might consider in the future, in particular uh, adding some regional detail so that we could examine regional climate impacts. Uh, This is of course of great interest to the parties to the negotiations. Even though we all live in the same world, there are differences in climate change impacts uh, from region to region. but the bottom line is that given the model's capabilities and its close alignment with a range of scenarios published in the Fourth Assessment Report, we support its widespread use among policymakers and the general public. You can find the full report from the uh, review panel on uh, the Climate Interactive website. So let's now leave PowerPoint and actually do a model demonstration. So let's see. Is that showing on the screen? Great. So this is the model, and uh, let me quickly uh, explain how to interpret this particular page. In this graph right here, what you're seeing is emissions of carbon dioxide in billions of tons per year of carbon uh, by three regions of the world which collectively total the global emissions. In this particular view, We've divided the world into three blocks. The developed countries, so that's North America, the EU, Japan, Australia, uh, New Zealand, a few others. Uh, and then two groups of developing countries, which we're calling Developing A and Developing B. Developing A is India, China, Pakistan, Indonesia, Mexico, Brazil, a few other countries that are well on the path to development but are not yet at Western levels of GDP per capita, and developing B is the rest of the world, the countries that are much farther behind in that process, most of Africa, uh, great parts of uh, Latin America other than Mexico and uh, Brazil, uh, the Middle East, and and a few other uh, countries in Asia. Collectively, these three curves add up to total global emissions, which you can see on this page right here, and The model then will project what the change in the atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide is given these emission trajectories between now and 2100. You can set a goal. The goal right now is set at 350 parts per million, but if you want to change that to 400, you can do that. I'm going to leave it back at 350 for right now. But you can set whatever target you want. Now, the model allows you to look in finer detail. So for example, we can set the policies for right now 15 countries and regional blocks. So the U.S. split out separately here, the EU, Russia and Eastern Europe, Canada, Mexico, other Latin America, Brazil, China, India, other large Asian countries, the smaller Asian countries, Uh, Australia, New Zealand, and the uh, rest of uh, the uh, more developed Pacific region, South Africa, the rest of Africa, and the Middle East. Collectively, these 15 sum to the world, and you can put in the policies for these individually. Now, for the purpose of today's demonstration, uh, it takes a little bit longer to put in 15 policies,
1: so with your permission...
3: Detailed version. Now, the model is actually running, and what you can do now is you can say, well, let's try a policy in which we slow down or alter the emissions here in these three regions. So let's begin with uh, the developed countries. And what we can do is we can say, let's stop the growth of emissions earlier. So, for example... And as I slide this slider over, and what it does is it tells us what year emissions are going to stop growing. So I'll set it at about 2040 or so. And as I move the slider, you see that the curve is changing essentially instantly. Every time I move the slider, as I move the slider, the model is simulating and it immediately shows you the results. So here what we've done is we've stopped the growth of emissions in the developed world in about the year 2040, actually 2042, but I can make it exactly 2040 without any difficulty. And what you see on the right now is... The green line here is the base case, where we were, and the blue line is the resulting carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere, which have fallen somewhat from the business as usual case, but continue to rise throughout the remainder of this century, reaching nearly 900 parts per million. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's take a look. This is global emissions, and by stopping the growth of the developed region, We've lowered global emissions from this blue line of business-as-usual to this line, which is where we are in the current scenario.
4: Now, what does that do to CO2 in the atmosphere? I just showed you that. We
3: can also look at CO2 equivalents, which includes the other gases, the radiative forcing impact of the other gases, and we're running uh, over 1,300 parts per 1000000 CO2 equivalent by 2,100. What does that mean for temperature? Well, here's global mean surface temperature from today up through 2100. The red line here is your business as usual case, which reached about 4.5, 4.6 degrees C increase over pre-industrial levels. The blue line is what we have with the policy I just implemented. It's a little bit lower, but temperature keeps rising all the way through the end of the century. And what does that mean for sea level? base case, sea level rises at an increasing rate uh, to uh, about just shy of 900 millimeters. In other words, almost a meter of sea level rise. And you can see a small difference in the two scenarios, but it is indeed very small. That's because of the tremendous inertia in the ocean's response to warming. Here, what you see is per capita emissions in the two cases. And there is a drop off here for the developed nations, but not very large. Well, so all I did was, one region, why don't we stop the growth of emissions in the developing country group, the more developed, so China, India, Pakistan, uh, Indonesia, Mexico, Brazil. And just about the same time, and now you can see there's a much larger drop off here, and while we're at it, we'll levelize emissions for the lesser developed countries in the year 2045. So now what we have is a scenario in which total global world emissions have stopped growing before the midpoint in this century. And you can see total emissions right here. So compared to BAU, we've completely stopped the growth of emissions. Now the question is, what's that going to do? Well. Here's carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It's still rising. It still grows throughout the entire time horizon. Now, why is that? Well, let's take a look at emissions compared to removals. So on this graph right here, this is the total global emissions, which stops growing in about the year 2045. And this graph shows the rate at which carbon dioxide is being removed from the atmosphere. Now, where does it go? It goes into two principal sinks, as they're known. First, much of it dissolves in the ocean. Second, the rest is principally taken up by biomass, plankton in the oceans and terrestrial biomass. Now, what you see here is that even though we've stopped the growth of emissions, the rate at which CO2 is being removed from the atmosphere remains at approximately half and indeed somewhat less than half of the total influx so the way to think about this is it's exactly like filling up a bathtub and what we've done is we've been increasing the flow into the tub by turning the faucet more and more so more and more water's been flowing into the tub and then we leave the faucet all the way open and water continues to flow in meanwhile the amount of water that's exiting through the drain is this curve here. And since more water is flowing into the bathtub than is leaving, the amount of water in the tub, of course, is rising throughout the simulation. And that's what you see here. It's less than BAU, but it's still growing throughout the entire period. If you look closely, you'll also see that the rate at which CO2 is being removed from the atmosphere actually begins to decline in the latter part of this century. That's because the sinks that are absorbing all of that carbon begin to saturate. So as the oceans take up more carbon through some very well-established basic physical chemistry, its ability, the ocean's ability to take up still more carbon declines. Similarly, as there's increased growth of forest cover on land, uh, there's less opportunity for incremental growth of trees and forest cover Uh, later on. So that process of sink saturation is causing this curve to fall. But even if it didn't, you'd still be pouring the water into the bathtub more than twice as fast as it's draining out. And so the concentration in the atmosphere must continue to rise very substantially, in this case up to 800 parts per million. Now I also need to tell you that following the IPCC's AR4 report, this model is over-optimistic because it does not include, in these simulations, the uh, impact of the many positive feedback loops which can cause a decrease in the rate of removal here. Some of those positive feedbacks are probably well known to you, but for example, as permafrost thaws out in a warming world, the very large quantity uh, of carbon that's currently frozen and out of circulation in that permafrost becomes available to bacteria and generates an increase in methane flux and carbon dioxide outgassing, which then further warms the planet in a positive feedback loop. Similarly, as the ocean warms, its ability to absorb carbon dioxide diminishes further over and above what you see here. So this model is over-optimistic in that regard, and you should keep that in mind. Now, uh, what happens uh, to temperature? Well, temperature is a little bit lower, but because we're continuously increasing the concentration, you don't see much of an impact on temperature, and there's very little impact on sea level. Well, so at this point, in a deliberation or a briefing, I would love for you to take over and... Tell me what scenarios to run, but since we have such a large group, I think that's a little bit impractical. But what what do you think we need to do? Where's Tony? Tony's over there. Tony, what do you think we need to do here, or what would you like to do? Well, I'll repeat I'll repeat your suggestion. If you or you can come up. Yeah, here we go.
0: Well, my inclination, John, would be to lower our uh, concentration target, lower emissions, and uh, see where we end up.
3: Great. Well, so one way to do that is I can accelerate the uh, cessation of emissions growth. So let's say that emissions stop growing in 2015. That's pretty soon, uh, and now we levelize at a lower value. And for the developing block uh, A, 2015 is probably not realistic. Let's say 2025. And for the less developed countries, let's go with 2030. So we've accelerated the uh, moment in time at which uh, emissions growth stops. And you can see it has had an impact, uh, but we're still growing throughout the entire period. And that's, again, because we're filling the bathtub faster than it's draining. Now, the gap is smaller, but we're still filling it faster than it's draining by about twice as much going in compared to what's coming out. And so temperature is now a little bit lower, but it's still rising throughout the century and is going to continue to rise after that, and sea level, very little impact. Of course, sea level is going to continue to rise for millennia after this uh, uh, amount of carbon is pumped into the atmosphere. It takes a very long time for that uh, impact to uh, equilibrate. Uh, But you see very little impact here. So we need to do better. So let's now also allow emissions to fall. And what we'll do is we'll, we'll allow emissions to fall at an average rate of 3% per year. Uh, and we'll start that sooner. So as I drag this over, emissions are now falling in the developed countries. And the way this looks is we have business as usual growth until about 2015. Then it levelizes, and then it gradually starts to fall, and then falls quickly at first, and then slower later on because you take the low hanging fruit, the easier uh, reductions in carbon emissions first, and then it gradually gets harder and harder. And I'll do something similar here. We'll take, uh, for the developing world, a 3% per year reduction as well. Uh, and we'll start that sooner. Can I grab that? There we go. And maybe something like that. And the same thing over here, maybe about uh, 2035 for them, and about 3% per year as well. So now emissions are falling. And you can see what's happening over here to concentrations. Concentrations are now stabilizing at about 500 parts per million. Let's see why. Well, here's total global emissions. They peak and gradually fall. And then here's emissions compared to removal. So now we're actually shutting off the faucet, and even though the rate of removal is declining because there's less CO2 in the air compared to what we saw before, we are just about able by 2100 to uh, bring the inflow and the outflow into balance. And so we're just about able to stabilize uh, at around 500 parts per million here. Now what does that mean for temperature? Well, temperature continues to rise throughout because we have not yet reached radiative balance. Uh, We've got a total uh, increase over pre-industrial levels of about three degrees here, which is a substantial improvement to the four and a half degrees that we had in the business as usual case, but it's still very far above the two degrees that many people talk about as the point beyond which we, we cannot safely go. Of course, there's no science that tells us two degrees is safe either. It's a matter of how much risk we're willing to bear. And then sea level, you can begin to see the impact there. So what's really needed here? Well, at this point, let me um, show you very quickly what happens if we put in all the current proposals. And before I do that, let me uh, explain what I mean by current proposals. So Senator Kerry talked about this briefly. Of course, we do not know what policies are being discussed behind closed doors in the run-up to the Copenhagen round of the COP negotiations with the meeting in Copenhagen scheduled for the end of this year. But from what's been publicly discussed or publicly presented or promised in election campaigns, we've assembled our estimate of what those policies are for the major countries. So for Brazil, They have pledged, if everybody else agrees, they will eliminate deforestation by 2050. Now, there's a substantial question, not only for Brazil, but for all the countries, about how are you going to actually succeed in implementation and enforcement, but we'll assume that that's going to be successful. Uh, So they've pledged to eliminate deforestation. Canada's pledged a 70% reduction in their carbon dioxide emissions from the 2006 level by 2050. China, it's not quite clear. They've already committed to a 10 or 15% improvement in energy efficiency overall to be completed by 2010. We've already included that in the BAU scenario that you just saw. What they're pledging for the future, it's it's not clear, so we have uh, that blank at the moment. Europe's pledged 80% reduction below 1990 levels by 2050, and you can read the rest. One of the most important things about this is that the policies are presented in terms that are not easy to compare with one another. So deforestation, what's the impact on, the, on CO2 from that? Canada is saying 70% below 2006 levels, whereas Europe is saying 80% below 1990 levels. So there's different base years. India has talked about equalizing emissions per capita. So under that proposal, their emissions would follow the business as usual growth path because their per capita emissions today are among the lowest in the world until they reached parity with the declining per capita emissions from the rest of the developed world, at which point they levelized their emissions. And one of the advantages of the model then is that it's very easy to enter these policies in the terms that they're presented in per capita Or emissions intensity of GDP, or whatever reference year it might be. And we've done that, and let's now take a look in the model at the result of that. So if I load that up, okay, Uh, and now we can take a look. The green line, remember, is business as usual, and the blue line now is the result of all the proposals. And to make this more clear, let me take our scenario, the one that we developed, out. So here, let's go back to here. Uh, Sorry. Yep. This is the three-region version showing the impact of all the proposals. In the developed world, emissions peak relatively soon and begin a gradual decline to this level. That's based on the EU pledge of the 80% reduction, it's based on implementing fully President Obama's pledge of 20% reduction in the United States by uh, 2020 and 80% by 2050, and it also includes the reductions in uh, in the developing countries. And what you see is that for exactly the same reasons that we've previously demonstrated, concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere continue to rise throughout the remainder of this century reaching a little over 700 parts per million and the reason for that is again although you've slowed down the growth of emissions emissions continue to exceed the rate of removal by substantial margins and so the bathtub continues to fill yeah there was a question go ahead So let me make sure I understand Is The question is, can I show you the historical sea level rise? Um, So I can't do that, and it's going to vary by region. And it's complex because not only is there... uh, Not only will the sea level rise differ by region of the world uh, because of what latitude you're at. So for example, as the West Antarctic ice sheet melts, the change in the local gravity anomaly from the weight of all that ice is going to redistribute the water to northerly latitudes. So sea level rise in the northern latitudes is going to be actually higher than the volume of water would indicate because water right now is basically piled up where the gravity is a little bit higher around Antarctica. So in addition to that, you have local subsidence rates. So, for example, New Orleans uh, and the Louisiana Delta is subsiding because of local geologic conditions and water table issues associated with development and levees. And so it's not really possible to show you right now today. What you need to do is go to the more detailed models for those local impacts. Now, what you see uh, a lot more questions coming up, but hang on just a minute because we're almost uh, into the question period. So what you see here is the global average impact on sea level, and it's really, uh, you can see it, but it's, it's a rather small, small impact. So what does this tell us? What it tells us is that the current publicly available proposals, as we've interpreted them, uh, do not get anywhere close to where we need to be in order to stabilize concentrations in the atmosphere. And uh, I think what I'll do at this point is uh, show you a few conclusion slides, and then we'll open it up for your suggestions and your, your comments. So... What this model allows us to do is implement the recommendation from the National Academy study that Bob alluded to at the beginning. That is to provide real-time analysis that's carefully grounded in the science for support of the deliberations. In order to do that, we have traded off the full complexity of the three-dimensional, integrated, coupled climate-carbon models for transparency and execution speed. And yet, we've been able to retain close correspondence between the behavior of this model and the behavior of those full models and keep it tied to the uh, peer-reviewed science. It also allows you to aggregate the diverse and incompatible emissions reduction proposals with different reference years, some in terms of emissions, some in terms of emissions intensity per dollar of GDP, some in terms of per capita emissions into a single global emissions trajectory and then project out the impact of that on concentrations of GHGs, temperature increase, and other impacts. And to do that fast enough, that as the proposals change, and they're changing basically every week because of the intensity of the negotiation effort that's taking place now in the run-up to the Copenhagen meeting, the model can be used quickly enough to implement whatever the current proposals are and keep us up to date, keep uh, the negotiators up to date. In terms of what's been publicly announced and available to us uh, to evaluate, the currently available proposals lead to continued growth in global emissions, although at a slower rate than business as usual. Collectively, those currently available publicly announced proposals are insufficient to stabilize the atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases or limit temperature change or sea level rise. And emissions remain far, far above the level that would be required to stabilize those GHG concentrations or limit temperature. So what is required? Well, there are scenarios, which I'm happy to show you, that will get us down below 450 and keep the temperature rise in the neighborhood of two degrees. What's required is to recognize that stabilizing the concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere requires a very substantial drop in global emissions because we have to drop the emission rate down to the rate at which those greenhouse gases are removed from the atmosphere, in exactly the same way that the water in your bathtub will rise as long as you're pouring it in faster than it's draining out. How much of a drop? It's about an 80% reduction off of the 1990 rates by the year 2050, with continued declines after that, and substantial reductions in deforestation. If we are able to do that, and we believe that is still technically and economically possible at modest uh, cost, uh, we can stabilize in the neighborhood of 450 parts per million and stabilize temperature increase and sea level rise. What I'm going to do now is invite you to visit the Climate Interactive website or my website and take a look at some of the papers. You'll find the full technical documentation for the model. You'll find the paper that my colleagues presented at the Scientific Congress in Copenhagen last week, which discusses the simulation results that I've showed you. And uh, you'll also find the uh, report of the scientific review panel there. And at this point, I'll turn it back over to Tony to moderate the Q&A. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Thank you um, is this mic on? Can you hear me? Yes, you can. Okay. What I'm going to ask everybody to do in a minute here, first, I wanted to thank you, John, and thank you, Bob, for um, an incredibly informative presentation, one I think the policy community uh, uh, needed to hear. And uh, I'm happy that you showed up today in large numbers, uh, like I say, given all the stuff that's going on. So because we're videotaping the event, I would ask that each of you come around this way here, come up here, use the mic face into the camera and ask your question. Thank you.
3: So we had several questions from the, from the back left uh, that I wasn't able to get to earlier. You folks want to weigh in at this point? Here you go. Great, all right. Go
0: on up front and be on camera. <laughs> Preserve for posterity. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Dan Kellogg, I'm a mechanical engineer. And I got one
5: real simple suggestion that may help the model in terms of dealing with American policymakers, makers. Uh, it's changed the scale to Fahrenheit for them. <laughs> because 6 degrees centigrade is 10.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. So it has a dramatic impact. And since we all think in Fahrenheit, we see these degrees that are in Celsius, but... Uh, we thank in Fahrenheit.
3: I, I think it's a terrific suggestion, easily done. Thank you.
6: Uh, I'm Alan Roth. I'm writing a book on climate change, I'm working on it for a couple of years, and I'm also working on some uh, new mitigation uh, opportunities. I'd li- like to, first of all, uh, commend uh, the team that's been working on this uh, because it, it brings out the need to do more than what is planned, that the prospects are very dim to, to achieve what we need. But I would, I would like to see a little different approach because the reality still needs to be more brought out. And that reality, and you mentioned it and I thought very well, is that we're not dealing with just CO2. We're dealing with CO2 equivalent. And when we looked at the parts per million of that rise, that's the reality. We're not just dealing with CO2 alone. And when we have that type of rise, that's going to affect temperature and sea level rise. And those need to be reflected, and I would think in a primary way, rather than secondary, because it's the reality. Then I understand that you're working on bringing in feedback effects. That that's in the future. And it's so needed now. But there is so much going on in that. And it's so frightening that to leave it at just this without a tremendous amount of, of effort in presenting these unknowns, but also uncomfortable unknowns, that the, the reduction of sea ice extent is going to have a huge impact is already having a huge impact. The trillion tons of carbon in the top three meters of permafrost, so much of that just has to come out this century. And as methane being so much stronger than CO2, the threat of that is just enormous. We're also losing sinks immediately as the Southern Ocean... We're losing that sink because the upwelling of CO2, not caused by climate change, but caused by the ozone hole that's not going to close up for a while, that is already affecting uh, the CO2 levels. It needs to be brought in. Um, There's so much going on that you wonder if we have a prayer to have any success in Copenhagen. And, And I just would like to see more reality brought up with the understanding that if you bring up too much, people will be overwhelmed with it, and may may not be able to act with with such a a disastrous picture in front of them. So I might see that that So, Alan, thank you very much. Uh, This is a,
3: a really terrific set of comments, and I have a few reactions. First of all, as you see on the screen right now, the model does track CO2 equivalents. And it is the total of not only the CO2, but all the other gases, the methane, the nitrous oxide, et cetera, which drives radiative balance in the model and thus temperature change, sea level impacts. So it is in the model. I think you're quite right that those other gases are extremely important. And although I didn't demonstrate it, it is very easy to uh, change the assumptions about the future paths for those other gases. And it makes some difference. I won't take the time to do that right now. With respect to the feedbacks, uh, this is a tricky issue. We do know that those positive feedbacks, the melting of the permafrost, the uh, impact of warming on the carbon capacity of the oceans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, there are many of them. We know that those positive feedback loops are real. The difficulty is that at present, they are poorly constrained by the data. The IPCC and AR4 took the approach for the most part that if it isn't well established and tightly constrained in the data, because we are conservative scientists, we're going to leave it out. That means that it's being assumed to have zero impact, which is one value we know is wrong. On the other hand, we don't want to speculate. So what we intend to do in the next iteration of the model is to include the capacity for the model users to uh, turn on those positive feedbacks. So for example, we can, uh, let me uh, see if I can do this right now, bring the current simulation back in. And uh, if I go to the sea level sector, Right now... No, I need to turn that on. Okay. If it comes back... You're able to... Uh, there we go. Take a look at what the incremental contribution to sea level rise might be from enhanced ice sheet melting. In the base case, there's 3.4 millimeters per year per degree C of warming impact on sea level. That's historically fine... But it doesn't account for the enhanced impact on sea level rise from faster rates of ice sheet decay that are plausible and some argue already occurring. Well, so let's do that. Let's add some additional melt from ice sheet breakup and uh, one millimeter per year per degree C additional impact. And now you see what the impact on sea level is immediately. And it raises the impact uh, from about uh, 900 millimeters to now about 1,800. So it's nearly double the sea level rise. Uh, That's well within the range of the positive feedback impacts that are being discussed. Now, my philosophy on this is we don't want to speak to the policymakers with more confidence than is justified by the science. But we want the tool, as you see here, with more work to be done, to be able to capture what the impacts would be if they suggest, as you did, wait a minute now, you're ignoring this important feedback effect. And so in this fashion, we're intending we're able to do that for some, and we intend to do that for the rest.
0: I'm going to ask everybody else to, when they come up here, get closer to the podium than uh, they have been up to this point. And let me follow very quickly that last person's comments. Um, there's been this notion of geoengineering And part of, I think, this feeling that, oh, my God, what do we do? What else is left in the portfolio? I think these are the origins of these kinds of discussions. I mean, we're being backed into a corner, I guess, in some ways. And while the science community uh, is wading through uh, things like geoengineering, um, I I think it's more of a backing-in process than sort of forward-looking in some ways. But nonetheless, I mean, I think everything has to be on the table at this point, anyway, next question
2: I just got back last night from a working group meeting for the cryosphere in the in uh, the Arctic. Um, a project that is due to do a very extensive assessment of the whole range of the frozen part of the planet, from sea ice to snow, permafrost, and the like and that project is underway with the goal of of a comprehensive analysis which is supported by the eight Arctic countries uh, out in spring of 2011. So we're going to be tracking that and picking up some of that science so that we can start to put into this process some of the things you mentioned because permafrost is one of the big parts of that assessment. For those of you who want to follow it, it's called SWIPA, snow, water, ice, permafrost in the Arctic.
7: Bob Wright from the Department of Energy, uh, just two points of clarification. Uh, In the uh, scenario where you had policies of a number of countries or regions, you had a blank for China. I assume that it was business as usual. uh, That's right. Okay, so they continue to admit. And then uh, one of your conclusions was that if everyone had 80% reductions uh, from 1990 levels by 2050, uh, that that would be a possibility. That includes China, correct?
3: Absolutely. Yes, thank you. So the scenario I showed you uh, is a global reduction of 80% by 2050 with continuing reductions after that. And that requ- in order to do that, every country must participate. You can run a scenario in the model very easily, and we can, we can do that if you wish, uh, showing that even if uh, China were to cut its emissions all the way to zero today, it would still be necessary for the rest of the world, including the developed countries, including the United States, to make substantial cuts in our emissions. So this is not something that can be put on the backs of any one country, not the U.S., not China, not any one country.
0: Hi, I'm Jeremy Richardson uh, from the Pew Center on Global Climate Change, and uh, I'm actually uh, interested, you you were suggesting... um, the 80% from 1990 levels by 2050. I think that you can make an argument for the near-term reductions being even more important. And I wondered uh, in order to get to that level that you suggested at the end, what when do emissions have to peak uh, globally? I couldn't see it from the
3: back. Thank you. Uh, okay. Thanks for a great presentation. Well, thank you. Uh, well, so uh, rather than just say it, why don't we try to do it? And uh, what we've got here at the three-region level, business as usual, and uh, What we can do is stop the growth of emissions, let's say basically today, 2012, for all the countries, all the regions of the world, about 2012. And uh, have their their emissions decline uh, pretty much immediately after that. So we'll have them peak and start to decline the next year. And we'll see what that does. So here's decline starting in 2015, emissions peaking in uh, about 2014, and we'll have about 4% per year this time rate of decline. That should be technically feasible and economically acceptable. And, uh, whoops, I've got to get uh, yeah, I've got a typographical error there. So 2015. There we go. And that gets us stabilization at about 450. And temperature increase uh, about 2.5 degrees, 2.6 degrees C by 2100. And that's with no incremental uh, impact on the other gases. So let's reduce other gases. This is on a scale from business as usual as one to the most aggressive decline in nitrous oxide. In this case, that's uh, discussed in the other models. And we'll do something similar with methane. And we can also, uh, uh, whoops, we can also go back and have some impact on deforestation, so we'll implement Brazil's policy and reduce deforestation, and we'll have some successful afforestation programs as well. Now, whether this is implementable, that remains to be seen. But what you've got now is a very large near-term impact and a decline, actually, in atmospheric concentrations that begins at about 2030, 2040, and declining at the end here uh, down towards our 350 goal. So we're we're, uh, actually able to go below 400 here. So there's enormous leverage and opportunity for much more rapid reductions in terms of what the impacts are going to be. And here, your temperature stays under 2 degrees.
4: Uh, Jay Brage, U.S. Department of Energy. Uh, One impact I don't think I saw on this thing was uh, ocean acidification. That's correct. We are not uh, explicitly
3: modeling the uh, acidification of the oceans or the impacts on corals or the uh,
4: various food webs at the moment. You may want to. That's one of those impacts which, to many of us, is possibly the scariest of them all. It's it's not amenable to geoengineering kind of uh, right. things, you know, and has uh, devastating, you know implications for the food chain, and if, if there is some way to bring some measure of that in, I mean, it's probably not that hard to calculate how much is going into the ocean. And... Right.
3: So so I want to be clear that... Uh, so thank you for your comment. I think it's an extremely interesting opportunity for model enhancement. I want to be clear that the model does include the impact of the carbonate chemistry on the uptake capability of the oceans. So as you saw, The rate of removal of CO2 from the atmosphere does decline over time, even with constant emissions, uh, because of the saturation of the ocean's capability to absorb further carbon. Uh, And it's that process of carbon and ion formation that leads to the reduction in pH. What we could do quite easily, I think, because the chemistry is well established, is is add an ocean pH indicator. What I don't think we could do easily, because it's still not well constrained in the biology literature, is tell you what that's going to do to the sea life. Right. But, uh, but the pH, pH we can absolutely uh, add. It's a great idea. Thank you.
4: And one other point. Um, I mean, this is an incredible capability to be able to connect policies to, to changes in global temperature and sea level rise and that sort of thing. But I think for maybe some countries, you know, that's, or policymakers, that's still a little abstract. You know, and they'll be looking for ways to kind of connect that to their regions of the world. And I wonder if there's any thought of coupling to something so that you can bring it home a little bit more. Like if there are going to be devastating droughts in some areas and uh, damage to flora and fauna that varies a lot, if you can yeah. make that connection with the policies.
3: So I think it's a it's a very interesting idea. It's similar to one of the suggestions from our scientific review panel. Uh, as you go down to more uh, local, regional scales, the uncertainties may get larger, but there are plenty of good three dimensional models out there that we could perhaps couple to in some fashion. So, this is something we're going to take a look at. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you,
8: Thank you very much. <clears throat> I'm Jed Schilling, I'm chairman of the Millennium Institute which has been committed for a long time for using this kind of system dynamic modeling in individual countries, and I want to compliment uh, John for a very excellent model, Uh, and also he's been on our board for several years, so we've worked closely together with this kind of modeling. Um, And we have developed a very complementary tool, which is country-level models that link economic, environmental, and social factors together in the same systematic way to test a number of these policies in individual countries to see what the results are and how they come out and we have models on the U.S., China, and a number of other countries where we've been looking at many of these policies. And I won't go into details of the models now. I would be happy to discuss this with any of you later. Um, He's reviewed our model, too. Uh, But the uh, one thing that has come out of this work, which I think is very important to take account of, is while you use a business-as-usual base case, one of the things that has come out of our studies is you also have to look at consumption as usual, because simply changing technologies, known technologies to get to current levels of consumption, whether it's the size of housing, the number of cars you drive, or things like that, makes it difficult, if not impossible, to reduce CO2 emissions. So we found it has to change consumption patterns, smaller, more efficient houses, shifting transport from freight on the road to rails, and things like that. So you can't have consumption as usual the same way you can't have business as usual. And I don't know whether that's taken care of uh, in this model or could be introduced but it's something that the policy people really have to think about. Thank you very
3: much. Thank you, Jed. And uh, since you've brought up the cost side, let me just share with you this figure which many of you are familiar with, which is McKinsey's estimate of the global supply curve for emissions abatement. And the important thing about this curve, and it speaks to exactly the issues that that Jed has just brought up, building efficiency, changing transportation modalities, and so forth, is that over here, in this region, right here, these have negative cost, which is to say, in Amory Lovins' terms, these are megawatts. It puts money in your pocket to do these things, and you reduce emissions. And if you look, you can see what they are. It's improving the energy efficiency of our building stock. It's it's improving the efficiency of our commercial vehicle fleet, lighting, air conditioning, uh, et cetera. These are investments that ought to be done now simply on the basis of the business case that it makes money for you. This is absolutely real, and I want to give you a couple of examples. This is the aggregate primary energy efficiency of the U.S. electric supply system. And since the Eisenhower administration, it has been stalled at about 30%, which means that roughly speaking, two out of every three joules, or for the English units, BTUs, uh, that we use to make electricity are wasted. They go into waste heat, and actually they cause a pollution problem because of the uh, wastewater uh, that's used and the temperature increase that then has to be mitigated. There's available technologies right now today that can get us up into the 70, 80, 90% range for efficiency and they all consist of capturing the waste heat and using it to generate electricity through combined heat and power or to to generate uh, low pressure steam for district heating or industrial processes. These are all real projects that have been done by companies that you see here and I'll give you one example. This is a steel plant in Indiana. You can see Chicago across the lake there. And what they did here, and this all comes from my colleague Tom Kasten, who's the CEO and founder of Red Recycled Energy Development. What they did here in the mid-90s was they captured the waste heat coming off of the Coke ovens, very high temperature, high-quality heat, and they use it to generate 95 megawatts of electric power with no incremental carbon and Uh, substantial amount of steam that's used in the plant offsetting carbon elsewhere that would have been needed to make the uh, steam and they can sell that electric power profitably at two and a half cents a kilowatt hour there's enormous opportunity to reduce our energy use to reduce our carbon emissions not only at low cost but in ways that put money in our pocket this is very well documented so i thank you for your comment
7: my name is John Topping with the Climate Institute, and uh, John, I wanted to compliment you. You know, first for your reference on the uh, huge potential for energy recycling. I think you've, 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 you've hit, you've hit on, on something that probably uh, is about half of what the United. I, I'm sorry. Uh, this, this provides probably at least half of what the US. could get in the next 10 years and much of the applications are worldwide. But I also wanted to compliment uh, you you and Bob very much on developing a powerful although remarkably sobering tool. but what I'd like to uh, do is sort of throw it out to you if you assume uh, let's say that we succeed in getting to let's say as low as 350 ppm equivalent uh, by uh, 2100. And, you know, that, that itself may be quite ambitious. Uh, what, does, uh, what does this mean for sea level in 2200 and 2300?
3: <laughs> so, uh, Tom, thank you for the comment. And it's, it's an extremely uh, important point to make. I mentioned it, but we intend to put it in the model explicitly. Sea level rise will continue for millennia, even after we are able to stabilize greenhouse concentrations, Uh, and the reason for that is just the tremendous thermal mass of the ocean, the tremendous inertia. Most of the sea level rise to date is the result of, well, it's about half and half. About half of the sea level rise to date is the result of uh, uh, thermal expansion of the water. Warmer water takes up more space, is less dense, and about half of it is the result of the Uh, enhanced melting of land, ice, glaciers, and snowpack. Uh, And uh, let me see if I can show you. Yeah, here we go. This is the fit of the model against the historic sea level data since 1850. And you can see that the model fits the data very well. Using these data to project the sea level impact as we have certainly underestimates the impact. So one of the things that we intend to do is not only enhance the model with the potential positive feedbacks that Alan discussed, but also display what the long-term sea-level rise is going to be, and it's shockingly large for almost any scenario. One, as many of you know, uh, Susan Solomon at NOAA recently published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy uh, with the provocative title that uh, climate climate change impacts are largely irreversible. And what she basically showed with models of this sort is that over the very long run, on the time scale of millennia, uh, sea level rise, once you've put that carbon into the atmosphere, once you've burned that coal and other fossil fuels, there's no going back. It's, uh, it's then locked in because of the inertia and the time delays. So we, we intend to display that in the model to make that salient. It's important, though, to realize that irreversible doesn't mean unpreventable. If we don't burn that carbon and we leave it in the ground where nature has placed it, then there's no irreversibility problem. We simply won't have that future sea level rise. We'll still have what we've already locked in from what we've burned so far, but we can avoid the future impacts.
5: My name is Dan Kellogg and I have another suggestion with the model in terms of a comment you made earlier. In the question and yep. answer period about it's very optimistic, and I noticed the slide on uncertainties. The uncertainties are pretty large, and you also have this tools being used by people who are non-technical policymakers. Right. Uh, we had a senator in here earlier, and so <laughs> we, when you think about the time delays and the political inertia and the manufacturing inertia and all those things that will delay and. And, and cause uh, you know, things to not be as rosy as this model is right now. We have to introduce something, at least, to counteract that called a safety factor. As an engineer, no engineering is ever done without a safety factor. Bridges are built many times stronger than they need to be because of uncertainties, because we want them to work. So if we want the, this to be successful, we, we have to get away from the conservative scientist model, which is important in its own sense. But when you move toward the implementation, we have to think actually a little more pessimistic because we want it to be successful. And then I would also think at some point down the road, it's going to happen. We're going to have to include geoengineering in the models because, frankly, I don't see a way realistically, economically, and everywhere else, at least from my opinion, that we
3: can actually achieve this. Well, uh, so it's a very interesting comment, and I thank you for it. Uh, I do agree about the safety margin. I'm afraid that where we are today in 2009 with all of the carbon that we've already burned and injected into the atmosphere, as you see in the simulations, there's not much safety margin left. We've already used that up. So I agree with you as well, and and, uh, the earlier comment uh, regarding the need to include the other feedback effects that are currently excluded because they aren't sufficiently constrained by peer-reviewed science at the moment. The science is, of course, moving quickly, but it's probably going to be some time before that's resolved to the satisfaction of the community. In the meantime, we do need to include those impacts, but as I said, we want to do that in a way where the users can test that out rather than we're assuming what it might be. Um, And... uh, (laughs) On um, geoengineering, uh, I think what's, what's needed there is a full accounting for both its potential as well as its costs and the large uncertainties around its potential unintended consequences. So all of the geoengineering schemes that have been discussed, whether it's injecting sulfate aerosols or seeding the Southern Ocean with iron, uh, all have the potential for large unintended consequences. They have not been studied sufficiently. We're nowhere near understanding the, uh, the dynamics of the ecosystems. And as was mentioned, uh, you could uh, inject sulfate aerosols into the atmosphere and reduce radiative forcing, but that would do nothing to stop the acidification of the oceans. So uh, I don't think that uh, as a conservative engineer, to some extent myself, I started in physics and engineering, uh, I would be reluctant to rush into geoengineering unless it's absolutely clear that there's no alternative and I suggested with the previous slides there's an awful lot of things we can do today with proven safe technologies that are cost-effective and indeed uh, have positive return on investment we ought to be doing those things first we ought to be doing those things now
5: hi uh, my name is Charles Murphy I just had a couple questions one uh, you mentioned that this model has been vetted by uh, peer-reviewed science. I was wondering if you have buy-in from Chinese and Indian scientists.
3: Uh, so you that. saw the members of the peer-review panel. They uh, it did not include anybody from China or India. Uh, we would certainly welcome uh, further review of the model. The documentation is available on the website, so uh, you can go there right after this session and download it and take any look you want at it. Uh, and critique the model, send us your opinions, and so can anybody else. I'm not criticizing that. I'm just
5: wondering no, if this could be an a point important of question. Uh, contention on the part of the
3: negotiators from those countries.
5: Hey, can I ask another question? Sure. Real quick? You mentioned that you uh, talked a lot about reducing emissions to 80% of 1990 levels. Is that the level that each country was emitting at that time, at 1990? <laughs> and is, if, if it's only talking about the United States or whatever, is that fair to bring back or, or say to say, China needs to get down below its 1990 levels um, compared to us and that relative thing.
3: So this is a very important point, and I want to I thank you for bringing it up and be absolutely clear about this. That 80% reduction is a reduction in global emissions. How that's accomplished is, uh, is not necessarily, and I'm sure will not be, that every country has to reduce by exactly 80%. Those countries which are currently far below the global average per capita uh, may need to increase their emissions in order to to bring their people up out of poverty uh, while they're switching to a carbon neutral uh, energy supply system. Countries like ours, Europe, uh, Japan, the developed countries, uh, we have the opportunity, we have the technology, and indeed you see the cost savings available for us to reduce our emissions dramatically. There's a further point that's worth making here, which is where the emissions are geographically originating is not necessarily where they're caused in the following sense. Everybody is aware that China's emissions, if you count up the CO2 coming from the political boundary of China, have uh, now pretty much exceeded the emissions of the United States. So people are now saying China is the number one emitting country whether the data support that. It's pretty close to a tie right now, but pretty clearly China's growth will cause them to surpass the United States soon. Much of those emissions, I don't want to quote a number, but a substantial chunk of those emissions arise because of the industry that exists in China to serve the consumer demand in the West. So who's really responsible for those emissions? I think they're part of the carbon footprint of the developed countries, which have chosen to locate manufacturing activity in low-wage countries. So uh, it's a global world now. We need to think about it in those terms and in the negotiation one of the critical issues is going to be who pays for the reductions and it's of course perfectly possible that reductions in the energy intensity or emissions in the less developed world will take place but will be paid for to at least some extent by the richer nations of the world who are benefiting from those reductions as well.
2: Yeah, let me just add a word about China. This, this uh, enterprise is part of what's called the Climate Action Initiative in which China is a part. Um, we have on our steering committee people from China. Uh, last week we had extensive conversations with BP, uh, CEO, uh and they're going to help us in this process. And also the chief negotiator for for China, Xi, Minister Xi, who actually I think is in town today here having conversations with Todd and and others. So we we're connecting into it, but we've not we've not had concrete activity other than they are aware of and have been exposed to the model. And uh there's some evidence that They're going to have this implemented within their own steering committee, the so-called CCIED committee that works on these sorts of things. So we're opening that door, but we have a long, long way to go. But they are a part of this enterprise.
9: I'm Elizabeth Baer with uh, Conservation International, and thanks for this. It's really, really excellent. Um, so I have two questions on some of the themes that have come up. One is around the emerging science, and um, uh, I like that, that you have the ability to change parameters as a user, but I wonder, as we're already seeing some of the observations more severe than what's in the assessment reports, what are the parameters for triggering moving some of that from user option into what's part of the business-as-usual Um, scenario. And then my other question or... Go ahead. Go ahead with the other questions. The other question is also around um, so these emissions are are, we're seeing these in in absolute emissions Um, and I'm assuming that the groupings of countries are related to uh, emissions intensity around GDP or per capita. So I'm wondering if there's ability to... Well, actually I want you to just expand a little bit more on um, ways in which you can look at um, emissions int- intensity, either in, in putting some of these um, s- some of these policies, or perhaps when you're looking at the results, if you could say, you know, if we implemented this policy, what does that actually mean in terms of uh, emissions per dollar GDP or right. per capita for each of the countries that would be implementing those types of
3: great. So terrific questions. And the first one on the science. So the IPCC process is a very careful and deliberative process, and uh, and that's a good thing. Uh, they're already, of course, in the process of developing what will be the fifth assessment report, but there are long lags as a consequence uh, between developments in the peer-reviewed literature and what is captured in official IPCC uh, reports. We, will, uh, we, we continuously stay abreast of what's going on in the peer-reviewed literature, and as results are published, and replicated or established more broadly, we will be incorporating them into the model without needing to wait for the fifth assessment report. Uh, On the other hand, I I am very clear as a scientist myself, I don't want the model to embed in the base case uh, uh, effects that we cannot ground in the established science. We do want the capability to try anything plausible. So, you know, if people think the climate uh, sensitivity is not three degrees C but six, and there's some probability mass in the distribution at that high, high sensitivity, uh, we want to be able to test that. We can test that right now, today. Um, on the second uh, question about how emissions uh, can be represented, you're seeing on the screen right now emissions per capita for the 15 regional blocks. And you can see, of course, that under this particular scenario, which is the one that we did a little bit ago that stabilizes us near the two-degree level, uh, emissions per capita fall everywhere in the world, but from different levels and at slightly different rates. So the United States, which is here, has to fall the most because we have the highest emissions per capita. And we also have the greatest opportunity for emissions reduction because of the enormous waste that's currently embedded in our way of of, uh, producing the energy that we use. And then the less developed countries down here, uh, and the gray line is the global average, uh, they, they have to drop as well, but not by as much. Now you can make trade-offs, not in this particular scenario, but as the previous question indicated, we could run in the 15-country version, so uh, right here. We can specify different rates of emissions change for the diff- different countries, so we can allow India and the lesser developed countries to grow their emissions per capita, while everybody else reduces. What matters to the planet is that the aggregate total has to fall by around that 80% off 1990 base by 2050, and the sooner the better. How that happens, that's a question of fairness negotiated out in Copenhagen.
10: <clears throat> My name's Martin Apple from the Council of Scientific Society Presidents. Um, As I look through all the things that you're doing, by the way, this is a wonderful thinking model for helping us put ideas together. Um, They sort of focus on how do we cut emissions, and we assume there are values like new technologies shifting away from carbon-producing fuels and so forth. The century started with 6 billion people. It's projected to grow to 9 billion people Um, Have we taken off the table what happens if that growth were to stop in 5, 10, 15, 20, or 25 or so years?
3: Uh, So, Martin, thank you. What we've done in the model is to follow the accepted uh, projections for population for each of the countries. Uh, We have the historical population values, of course, up through the most recent available data, and we use the standard uh, projections that are pretty consistent from the UN, from the other agencies uh, going out uh, into the future. And what that suggests is about 9 billion people, 6.75 billion today, about 9 billion people by 2050 with approximate stabilization due to the shifting age structure of the population uh, for the second half of the century. Now, there's some uncertainty, of course, in the population projections because they all assume continued demographic transition everywhere around the world. The demographic transition, of course, is the process whereby as a population uh, moves from a pre-industrial agrarian society into a more modern industrial and post-industrial society, uh, family size tends to decline, birth rates tend to decline, the age of childbearing tends to increase, and so the population growth rate eventually falls. But the word eventually is important there because of the large inertia in the age structure. People often don't realize that if you could magically snap your fingers right now today, and achieve replacement fertility rates everywhere in the world instantly, the world population would still continue to grow for about 40, 50 years. And the reason for that, of course, is the cohorts of people who are not yet in the childbearing ages, the people who are 15 and under, 20 and under, are much larger than the cohorts of people who are in the childbearing ages. So even replacement fertility achieved today would still cause substantial future population growth. It's a matter of some debate in the uh, demography literature as to whether it's reasonable to assume continued demographic transition for every country, particularly if there are disruptions to the economies of those countries. The demographic transition is complex and not fully understood, but it's generally thought that as you become richer as a society, the costs of children go up and their ability to contribute economically to household income goes down. You can take a four-year-old and have them carry water or work in the fields, but in our society, children are not productive contributors to household income until ever. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so when you raise the price of something, the demand for it goes down. That's the economic view. There's a sociological view, and there's other views on the demographic transition, But in any of these theories, it's clear that if there are major economic disruptions, such as massive displacement of uh, populations from low-lying regions because of sea level rise or uh, other disruptions because of high energy prices or whatever it might be, conflict arising from any cause, uh, then uh, birth rates may not fall according to that nice curve. And in that case, you could see some some significant changes in the population trajectory. We are not going to speculate about that. We use the standard accepted projections for population in the model. But again, and I can show you the population projections, uh, anybody who who wants uh, can... uh, There we go. Those are the populations for seven and for the three regions. And you can see some decline there towards the end of the... 21st century and that's not because of any increase in death rates it's because of the aging of the population uh, and uh, we can change those but we're going to stick with the standard projections to make sure we're carefully grounded in
10: what's generally might exciting. this be the first generation in which we have reached the point of exhausting the earth and we really can't build those, those numbers
3: so this is part of the conversation that we hope uh, this kind of modeling will will uh, contribute to
0: Well, I think we've exhausted the questions. Um, Thank you, John, and thank you, Bob. Uh, Thank
1: you. It's my pleasure.